Well, uh, we were, Lauren and I were at a pastor and spouse retreat. We told you that last week, and uh, we went up to Whistler for two nights, and uh, it was really great, really fun. We were with all of the um, other church leaders in our church family, so the Mennonite Brethren family and the BC leaders, and so we were all together there, and it was really fun. We had a, a great speaker, and then we also had a comedian one of the nights because they said pastors need to laugh more. And, uh, you know, you're also serious, so we got to get you laughing. And it was actually funny. You know, comedian to a bunch of pastors is like, oh, that's a hard crowd. Would not want to have that job, but, um, but it was really great. Um, our speaker, though, he was, uh, he's a mobilizer with MB Mission, and he shared a story that really deeply impacted me. And it was the story of, um, he works in Southeast Asia, and I'm not, I'm not sure if he's okay with the country being named, so I won't name it, but... Uh, he works all through Southeast Asia, but um, and this one particular time he was um, translating for um, some of the church leaders, church planters there in this certain country, and a team that came over from Canada. And uh, so he was translating, and they were sharing about um, their stories and kind of their different work they did. And this one old man was a church planter, and there was a young man with the same name, but an old guy. And so they were talking with this old guy, and he, he was saying how he would go out and he would plant churches, and he would share the good news with people, and they would come to faith, and he would plant a church. And then the authorities, the local authorities, would take him, and they'd put him in jail. And they said, you're not allowed. We don't want you to do this anymore. You need to stop doing this. And so they'd put him in jail for whatever period of time, and then they'd let him out and say, stop it. And then he'd go out, and he'd plant a few more churches. And then they'd catch him again, and then they'd take him to jail, and they'd say, stop it. You need to stop doing this. And then he'd get out after time, and they would send him out, and he would go out, and he would plant more churches. And he just kept doing this. And so he would just plant churches between his jail stints. And uh, the last time, he'd been in jail for a year. And, um, and then the, the man started to describe what his jail condition was like. They asked him, you know, what's the jail like? And he said, well, it's a cell that was built for six people, and they've put 20 people in there. And then he said... The, the way they build these jails is they build the ceiling four feet off the ground so everyone has to stoop all the time. You can't stand up straight. And so for the last year, he's been in a four-foot-high cell, stooped over, and they mark out, because there's 20 of them in there, there's no furniture, they mark out their square of ground so people don't kill each other. And then that square of ground that's marked out is your life. That's where you sleep. That's where you go to the bathroom. That is your space. And these guys, they're listening to this, and they're just weeping. And they say to this church plant, this old man, they say, how do you do this? How do you keep doing that over and over? And, and how, do you, how do you keep your faith alive in that situation for that long, over and over and over? And the man said, have you read your Bible? And they were like, what? He's like, that's what the Bible says we should expect. So this is what we expect. Isn't that what you expect? <laughs> like, no, our government likes us. I don't know. They help us. We expect a lot from the government, you know. And they say, oh, we expect the government will oppose us and will put us in jail. And so this is the life we expect. When someone asks me, what do I have to do to become a Christian? 
I'm thinking they mean like, what are the steps that you need to take to become a Christian? Or what are the expectations of me as I become a Christian? What are my duties? What do I expect of that? Kind of what are the rules I need to follow? Generally kind of thinking about that. And so Usually I'm trying to sell them on the benefits of becoming a Christian. So I might say, you know, well, there's forgiveness, there's redemption, there's a better life, there's love and joy and peace and patience and all the fruit of the Spirit because the Spirit lives in you and so brings about all this great stuff in your life. You get grace for every sin, no more guilt or shame. You come under the cross and it's beautiful. The presence of God is in your life transforming and leading you. You, you have a happier life. There's God's blessing. Your sports teams will win. You don't, you don't need to study for your exams anymore. You get raises every time you want to raise. And, and you, if you go take the lottery, you win the lottery. And maybe I take it too far, right? Maybe we, sometimes we go a little too far in what we're promising. <laughs> what does Jesus say when they come and they ask him this question? It's an interesting thing. This is the story we're in as we work our way through Luke. We're in Luke chapter 18, and Jesus gets the question. And this is what we're exploring today. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 18. Uh, We're in verse 18 to 34. And uh, if you don't, that's okay. I'm going to read it. Uh, Or you can follow along in your own Bible or on your Bible app. And a rich... Or a ruler, the the heading is the rich ruler. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, Don't worry about it. Just come along with me. It's okay. Just give a little bit. No, actually, that's not true. I changed it. Jesus, seeing that he'd become very sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. This is God's word. Following Jesus. What's my big idea? It's following Jesus will cost us everything. 
which is impossible without him. Following Jesus will cost us everything, which is impossible without him. The, the ruler says to Jesus, what must I do? That's his question. What must I do? There's a, a joke about a, a great golfer who died. He was a professional on the tour. And he died and he went to heaven. And at the gate, St. Peter warned him, you know, you're about to go in and meet God and it doesn't look good for you. I mean, you are a golfer. So what did you do for the greater good of society? Did you, like, you know, give to the poor or anything like that? I, you, it doesn't show that you did. So I'm a bit worried about you when you go in. Is there anything at all, maybe something we've missed here, that, you know, you, that you've done that's awesome? And the guy says, well, actually, after a golf tournament in California, I was driving past a parking lot, and there was a, a woman out in the parking lot, and this biker gang was driving around her, and they were yelling obscenities at her, and she looked very distressed. And so I, I pulled the car into the parking lot, and I popped my trunk, and I got out my five iron. And I went over into the crowd, and I looked, and I saw the guy who was the most muscular, and he had the most tattoos, and he had the big beard, and he had, you know, had this big scar on his face. He looked like the leader, and I went over, and he had a nose ring, and, and I went over, and I grabbed him by the nose, and, but then I pulled the nose ring out, and you know, I just said, hey, buddy, you'll get more of that if you keep bugging her. And St. Peter said, what? Wow, this is amazing. I mean, this is incredible. When did this happen? The guy said, two minutes ago. Now I'm here. That was my moment. Many, <laughs> that took you a few minutes, I think. Some of you are like, I'm still trying to think, what does that mean? A lot of us think that heaven entry will be like this, that we're going to get to the gate and we're going to have to, you know, God's going to be looking at our good and bad and we're going to, hopefully we've got something impressive that we've done in our life that we can bring before him and, and he'll be impressed by it or that's going to, you know, tilt the scales in our favor. We kind of have this down, deep down feeling about this. And this guy asked the question, what do I need to do? What's the thing I need to do to get eternal life, to impress God, to, to, to guarantee life forever with God? And his question is the question. Man, that is the question we need to answer, isn't it? Now, routinely, people would ask a traveling rabbi, someone who's coming through town, they would go and ask them these big life questions. And you might, might build your theology. If you weren't a follower of a certain rabbi, you might build your theology around some of their answers. So you'd go to the rabbi, and maybe they'd ask him, you know, what's the greatest commandment? That's a common question they'd get, too. Jesus answers it different places. What's the, most, what's the greatest commandment? And this rabbi will tell you this, and you get this kind of window. Maybe the next traveling, you come on, and you say, hey, what do you think is the greatest commandment? And they would say, oh, it's this. And you say, okay, okay, so, you know, I'm putting this together. Here's how I'm supposed to follow God. And they come to Jesus, and then they ask this very common question, which is, what do I need to do to gain eternal life? That's like a common rabbi question where you'd get the answer. And the Old Testament answer, the one that they would give you, if they gave you a variation, it would be, the answer would be, keep the commands. That's what you need to do. You keep the commands. And, you know, God had promised Israel life if they followed the commands. And at first, it looks like it's just about the promised land. You'll have long life in the promised land if you keep the commands. And, and later, by the time Jesus is around, they, get the, they understand this is about something bigger than just 
physical place. This is about eternal life. It's about life and relationship with God. We see it, David, in Psalm 18. What is he celebrating? He says this, For all his rules were before me, and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from my guilt. This is commonly made into a song that we sing. Have you heard it? For all his rules were before me. No? Yeah, we don't make this verse into a song, do we? No. It's not really commonly known, is it? Or a different psalm writer, he says in Psalm 119, If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. This is how they understood it. You keep the commands. You do what God requires, and that's how you enter into eternal life. That's how you follow God. So how does Jesus answer the stock question, the question that is routinely asked of a rabbi? What does he say? The first thing he does is he acts surprised that the guy says, you're a good teacher. Was that weird to you? I don't know. It's like, it's weird to me when I read it and someone says, Jesus, oh, good teacher. And Jesus is like, who's good? What do you mean who's, what do you mean good teacher? I'm like, Jesus, why are you doing that? Why, why are you making a big deal about that? The reason is because that wasn't a common title. In fact, uh, one of the commentaries, writer says, there's no instance in the whole Talmud of a rabbi being addressed as good master. They insisted on calling God alone good. This wasn't a title because you wouldn't go around saying, hey, good pastor, and the pastor would say, whoa, 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 God is good. Like, we are, we're bad, we're people, we, we, you know, we, so we do good things, but God is good. It's like how we've taken the word awesome, I don't know if, if you were around in the church like 20 years ago and people started saying, hey, that's awesome. And everyone's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't say awesome. Don't say that's awesome. That's bad. Only God is awesome. Do you remember that, some of you? Yes. Okay, thank you, Bob. 40 years ago. Okay, maybe it's a little longer than that. I'm only 40. No, I remember. Then this was the thing. You, people would say, God is awesome. awesome. That's a word we use for God. And then you say, hey, this car's awesome. And you'd be like, no, the car's not. God is awesome. The same thing for them. They would say, God is good. You say, oh, you're good. We'd be like, no, 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 no. God is good. We're like, we're, we're not sure about us. We know God is good. So when Jesus points this out to this guy, he's making a statement. Spurgeon says this, the argument's clear. Either Jesus was good... Or he ought not to have called him good. But as there is none good but God, Jesus, who is good, must be God. That's like a tongue twister. As there is none good but God, Jesus, who is good, must be God. This is Spurgeon's argument. That what Jesus is saying when he identifies this, why he makes something out of this, he's clarifying. Jesus is saying, are, do you know what you're saying to me? And will you respond to what I say to you? If you think I'm good, like God is good. Will you respond when I call you? And then Jesus answers the question, and he answers with the party line. It's like, keep the commands. Jesus says, you know, from Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5, wherever you want to read the Ten Commandments, he picks a few. Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. These are the commands Jesus picks. Now, if I was a kid, as I was growing up in the church, 
And someone said, you know, what are the commands? I might have said them this way. It's a paraphrase, a loose paraphrase. You know the commandments. Do not drink beer. Do not say bad words. Do not go to Las Vegas. Go to church. Read your Bible. Pray every day and give money to the church. And if you keep those commands, you'll be doing well. That's kind of, I think, what we kind of thought of as being the commands, roughly. You know, we knew the Ten Commandments, but, you know, it's like these ones too. Now, here's the thing that's, that surprises me. Jesus is giving a list of commands, but he doesn't start with the first one. He doesn't start with the first one. Do you know what the first commandment is of the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's what Jesus could have said. He could have started with number one and then gone to number two, which is don't worship idols. But he doesn't. Mark chapter 10, where Mark tells this same story about the the young ruler. Mark says this, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And then he said, give everything. I think that's such a neat thing that that Mark has there. Jesus loved him. This wasn't like Jesus being like, hey, I know it's going to make you get lost. I'll say something super crazy. Jesus loved him and said this. Do you know what I remember as a, as a kid growing up in the church, and I did, that, you know, I was the, I was the, gold, the good kid, the golden boy. I was like, I'm trying to do everything right. I was trying to please God. My heart was to do right. And so I kept at least my commands that I said, you know, mostly. Mostly I kept those commands. And, and I tried to follow God, and I was the youth group golden boy. And so by the time I got to young adulthood, I kind of thought of myself as pretty good. I was doing pretty well, keeping the commands. I'm pretty blameless. And I remember the moment when I was sitting on the floor in Azerbaijan. Is God in Azerbaijan? He was with me. And I was sitting on the floor, and I was praying and saying, God, I want to understand grace more. And I don't know that I really feel like a lot about grace. And then I had this moment where it felt like God met me sitting there on the floor in my quiet time while I was with Youth with a Mission in Azerbaijan, where God took me through my whole life. And every great and awesome thing I'd done, oh, I went on that mission trip when I was 12, and I got up and I shared the gospel, preached the gospel to a crowd. God brought me through those moments. And suddenly I saw my own heart, the pride, and the, my want of glory in those moments. This is for me. And every great and awesome thing, I was like, yes, let's write that on the awesome John list. God brought me through and showed me I was proud and selfish. And by the time I got to the end, I was like, What? Nothing's left. All of it's been tainted by my own sin, by my own self. I can't even claim the great things because I'm there in the middle of it with my own stuff going on. What must I do? Jesus says, give everything. At a certain church meeting, the congregation's wealthiest memory was a multimillionaire. He got up and he decided to share a portion of his faith story. So he said, you know, I'm a, a millionaire and I attribute this to the rich blessings of God. And I can still remember this turning point in my faith like it was yesterday. I, I, I worked the day and I got a dollar and I came to the youth meeting and I sat in the youth meeting and a missionary got up and he was sharing about his story and his journey. And I knew that I 
needed to give, but I had just my $1. It was everything. Either I was going to give everything or I was going to give nothing. And he said, so I gave everything, and it changed changed my world for me. And so I look back, and that's how when the blessing of God started, and I became this multimillionaire now. And this old lady sitting in the back, she says, well, that's a great story. I dare you to do it again. (laughs) It's easier when you have one dollar to give everything. It's a lot harder when you have a multi-millions of dollars to give everything, isn't it? Jesus, when he heard this, he said to him, one thing you lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Now, someone sent me, uh, he's a new Christian, he sent me this YouTube video and it was, the YouTube video was like this compilation of all of these different things and like, it was like, Jesus says, give everything to the poor. Why aren't we doing this? This is the sermon you'll never hear in church. No preacher will preach this. And they put together all these verses like, give everything. Why do you have anything? You need to give it all. And this new Christian was like, is this true? And I was looking at it and I was like, this message coming from an anonymous YouTuber, I find hard to credit personally. Like, what, you're an anonymous YouTuber telling me to give everything I own? What about you? You're anonymous. I don't even know what your life is like. The truth is, This is a question we need to answer, though. Is wealth bad? Should we be doing this? Should I be giving all of my stuff away? Should I get rid of my iPhone and our TVs and our cars and our homes and our clothing and our toys? Should we be doing that? Is that what we're supposed to do? One commentary said, there's two mistakes that we could make here. The first mistake is that we could... Apply this to everyone as a command of Jesus, and that would be a mistake. Or we could apply it to no one. If we apply it to everyone, we have to say that Jesus is making a command for every disciple for all time, which I think is ridiculous if we did this. If actually every person took this and did it, we would empty the homeless city, and then we would all go live there. Wouldn't we? If we all sold our homes and our cars and everything and we gave all that money to them, then we would all move in down there. Oh, it might be kind of fun. We could have like a Christian commune or something. We could do it. And the truth is there are people who are gifted and they are called to make money for the kingdom. And they have that gift and ability. And they are called to do that, to give and to sow into what the kingdom's doing and kingdom work. But a second mistake would be if we applied it to no one. We said, this is just Jesus talking to this one guy. It's just this one guy. No, this couldn't apply to anyone else ever because it's just the one guy. It's more comfortable maybe to do that. But I don't think that's accurate either. The kingdom is here right now, and it's changing our lives in this moment and every moment. The kingdom life isn't a heaven club card that you get and then, oh, yeah, I've got the club card. I'm in, I'm in. It's like the kingdom is changing my decisions moment by moment. It's directing my life. Jesus is here moving me in different directions, sometimes costly or sacrificial ones. And so when Jesus says give everything, maybe it's your money. Maybe it is for you, your money. Maybe for some of you, though, it's your sports or it's sex or it's your career or it's your social position or your family, or your education, or your philanthropy, or your reputation. 
Jesus will call you to give your last idol, whatever it is, whatever you're holding on to. I always picture idols as being like a little statue. So I'm always like, yeah, yeah, I don't have that problem. I don't have any little statues in my yard or in my house. So I'm doing well. Unfortunately, there's people like Tim Keller who define it in a way that's harder to uh, write off. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel, would hard, feel hardly worth living. And then he says, an idol is whatever you look at and you say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. And then I'll know I have value and I'll feel significant and secure. That's an idol. And unfortunately, those are way more common than little statues. And the point is that you have to let go of whatever you're holding to get the treasure. There... (laughs) There's this monkey trap. I don't know if you ever heard of this. They tried to trap monkeys for a long time, and the monkeys were super smart. So if you wanted to catch a monkey, it was hard to do until they figured this out. Monkeys are very curious. And so what they do is they tie a little thing to a tree, attach it, and then they put something in this bucket and put a lid on it that only has a small opening. And so the monkeys would come along, and they'd hear it rattling around in there, and they'd stick their hand into the bucket, and they'd grab onto the thing that was inside. It could be a rock. It could be anything. And they put their hand on it, and then their hand wouldn't come out when it made a fist. And so as long as they're holding on to that object, they were trapped. And then the people would come out, and they'd just take the monkey. There it is. It's just stuck. Now, the funniest part about this, sad if you love monkeys being in the wild, was that, (laughs) thank you, Ben, for the laugh. If the monkey only would open its hand, it could pull its hand out. It's not held there by anything. It's held there by its own desire to hold on to that object. Jesus tells this story a different way with a more positive spin than monkeys being captured. In Matthew 13, he talks about it like there's a treasure in a field and the guy's digging and comes across the treasure. What does he do? Puts it back under the ground and he goes and he sells everything he has to buy the field he knows has a treasure. That's a deal. Well, you have to sell everything. Well, yeah, but I get the treasure. Or the other second story Jesus tells is this this pearl, this guy who's a pearl salesman. He knows about pearls, and he goes to the flea market or wherever, and he sees this pearl, and it's expensive, but he knows it's priceless. This guy's totally undervalued it. He goes and sells everything he has to get the pearl that's undervalued. He goes and he gets it, and he's got the treasure. Is that a good trade? Yes, that's a good trade. To give everything for something priceless. What are you holding back? What are you holding on to? The kingdom is available for every willing heart. But it's accessible when your hands are open. When you're holding on, you're like in the monkey trap. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The rich person has to let go of their riches. The family-focused, obsessed person, or like their family is everything, 
They have to let go of their family. And Jesus, at the end of this story, says God in the flesh is going to give his life for this, to sacrifice himself as the example for us. So what are the things you're holding on to? Where in your life is it hard for you to trust him? What, what things do you have there that you're like, Jesus, yeah, you can have that and that and that and that, but, but I'm going to take care of this one because, you know, I know you said you'd take care of this, but I know I need to. Or what places, what things maybe in your life do you not believe God? That's what it is. We say, I know you said this, but I'm going to take care of this one because I don't totally believe you are going to do it. That's the part Jesus wants. That's the thing he's looking at. And he would identify for you or for me. Now, this is impossible. It's impossible. When we did our C2C assessment, that was our, in order to become church planters with our network, we had to go through all these series of uh, hoops and things to make sure that, you know, they thought we could do this. And I, you know, was worried. I don't, didn't think I could do this. So I was like, Hey, just tell me any time if you don't think we should do this. And so we went through the steps, and we got to the assessment, which is like a three-day, really intense thing where you sit in a fishbowl of people, and they make you do things and take personality exams, and, and then they examine your reactions and what you say and how you do this, and, and they're all watching and writing things down. And one of the exercises we did, they took Lauren, and they put her in another room, and they put me in a group, and they sat us down at this table, and then they plopped down all this paper on the table, and they said, you need to go through all of this stuff as a group, and then you need to come to a consensus on what your group's going to do for this certain thing. And it was like, whoa, okay, this is intense. And they're like, you have 45 minutes. We're like, oh, okay, okay, 45 minutes, okay. So we start divvying out the paper. Okay, you read that one, I'll read this one. So we start reading. And okay, I'm, gonna, I'm like partway through. I'm a fast reader too, reading. They come back in the room. They're like, okay, you have 15 minutes, 15 minutes. We're like, what? That was, what? 50, this is crazy. And people are like really getting stressed out and agitated. And they're like, oh my goodness. And then like a minute later, they come back in. You have five minutes, five minutes left. Make a decision. You need to present to the rest of the group. And people are like, oh, okay, you do this, you do this. Okay, uh, I don't know. We just, let's just agree. I don't even care if it's true. We'll just agree. It was like something like none of us would ever agree. It was like things you won't agree on. And I didn't get stressed out. Do you know why? Because as soon as they came in the very first time and they said this randomly weird time, like 45 minutes at 15 minutes, I'm like totally skeptical. Like, this, this smells of trickery. This is the kind of thing I would do to my youth group. So I'm, I'm on to you guys. And so, you know, like, well, I was there doing the thing, but I, well, I didn't feel quite as stressed out. And the reality was, and they said this after, <laughs> the task was impossible. We gave you an impossible task in the time that we kept reducing. Because the actual exercise was about stress management. It was about how do you act when you don't have enough time to do something and the people you're sitting with won't agree with you. It's just like church. <laughs> it's like, that's, oh, wow, okay, yeah, you're right. Oh. How do, what do we do? That was the point. The point of it. And if this story were about following the rules and giving everything away, the ending would be different. 
the end of it would be different. But Jesus says this, it's such a funny expression here, for it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It seems hard to believe even when it looks like that. Now, people have argued that the eye of a needle is actually referring to a gate, a gate in Jerusalem that was a low gate, and the camel would have to come, and they'd have to unpack the camel, and the camel would have to go down to get through the gate. And I've heard this, and I kind of thought this. I had like, okay, it could be that or it could be this. And so we're preaching on this, so I'm looking it up. And every commentary I found said that's not true. So I don't want to burst your bubble, but I just did. You're right. So this expression is an expression that means it's impossible. It'd be like if we said, like when pigs fly. Like when pigs fly which you would say, that's kind of weird. And there's later Babylonian sources in other Jewish literatures, literature where they talk about an elephant going through the eye of a needle, and there's a picture of a needle and an elephant. You think, like, what? this is such a weird thing. What, is this an expression? That was my other cartoon. The, the expression is, it's impossible to get the largest animal that we can think of like an elephant or a camel through the smallest opening we can find, which would be the eye of a needle. So why is it so hard for rich people? Why does Jesus say this? Do you know why? Because we want to justify ourselves. We want to earn our own way. And I say we because we're the rich people. This guy comes with a spotless record. He's got nice clothes. He's clean cut. He's the ruler. He's organized. He's asking good questions. He's rich in religion for sure. He would be the youth group superstar trying to justify himself. But Jesus refuses to affirm that way of getting there. He pushes the bar beyond this guy, beyond him and beyond us. And I love the disciples' response which is, well, then how can anyone be saved? Jesus, what did you just say? What do you mean? Like, no one could be saved if that's true. What, the camel and the eye of a needle, which, by the way, fits that interpretation of the eye and the needle. We would say, that's impossible. How, who could be saved then? Yes, it's impossible. If you would be perfect. In Matthew, in the Matthew version of the story, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give the money to the poor. I'm like, oh, the guy could be perfect. Oh, no, he can't because he won't do it. Why does Jesus always demand more? Why is he always pushing the bar? Why does it go from divorce is now adultery and lust is now adultery and anger is now murder and sacrifice becomes the one thing you can't give? Money or your family, or your home. Why? Why is it that one more thing? Because you can't. And if you and I are honest, we'll admit we can't do this. I can't give everything. Every time I try, I find, wow, that idol came right back. I was good for like two days, doing well. There it is again. 
Why? Because I want pleasure, and I want security, and I want to claim, and I want comfort, and I want control. And I don't always trust that I'm going to get that from Jesus. And so I do it myself. The last four stories, Tim said this last week, have been about Jesus. The story of the poor, persistent widow given justice by a bad judge, the ashamed tax collector who's justified through mercy, the helpless infants who are blessed and welcomed, and a rich man who won't let go and embrace the kingdom. These are all stories about Jesus. Jesus gave himself for justice. Jesus gave himself as the atoning sacrifice for mercy. Jesus became helpless. Jesus gave everything. And that's the end of the story where Jesus takes the disciples aside and he says, hey guys, let me tell you how it goes. I'm going to give everything for this so that everything that the prophets said would be accomplished. It's going to happen because I'm going to give everything. Or he says it this way in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. How are we going to get it? Believe in him. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. They say, this is impossible, Jesus. And Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Jesus says, I'm going to give my life to make what is impossible possible. That's what I'm going to do. Not because of what we're doing, but because of what he did. We don't let go of everything because we're so awesome at following. I think that sometimes. I think if I'm just better at following, I'll get this nailed down. I'll have an undivided heart if I just get better at following. And it's the awesome followers, obviously. I don't know where they are. They're out there somewhere, and they're doing it because they're so awesome. And if I was more awesome like them, I'd be able to do it too. That's not the answer. We're able to give everything because Jesus did. Because he's here walking with us. His very life in suffering and in death and then his spirit alive in us is what's transforming us to be able to do that. To love him and to give everything for him. To follow him. And so, in conclusion, following Jesus will cost us everything, which is impossible without him. The guy asked the question that is our question, what must I do? What do I do to do this? And we all wrestle the question, what does God want from me? Will I be good enough? Will I do or give enough? Can I keep the rules enough? And of course, Jesus takes it all to another level as he tends to do. The bar is set at everything. God will not settle for less than our whole hearts. Nothing held back from him. And then it's impossible. I don't know, for me, it's impossible. I will not be able to love him completely because I'm too broken. I have too many broken parts, too many gaps. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is Jesus giving himself. His promise is him, that he's going to die and rise again and live in us by his spirit and transform us so that we can become like him. We can love like him. It's possible because of him. Let's pray.
Jesus, I thank you that um, you came, that you came and you lived among us and you walked among us and you, um, you showed us what God's heart was like. And there's sometimes where we see things you do or you say and we're confused or we have a hard time understanding it. And um, lots of those times I, I believe, Jesus, that you, you're showing us how big the gap is and how much we need you to fill it. And so this morning, Jesus, my prayer is that we would be able to embrace the fact that we don't measure up. We can't qualify ourselves. We trust you. We believe you for that. And so the welcome is open. The kingdom door is open to all who are willing to enter, to all who are willing to trust you with their lives. And then I thank you that it is impossible. We, even, even when we've embraced you, the, the kingdom life is hard. It's impossible for us to do, except by your spirit, that you come and you live in us and you transform us and you enable us to follow you, to give up our idols, to give up the things we trust and we take security in to love you more and to see you move in our lives. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace. Amen.